Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga of College Coach, one of the guest hosts on the program. This is a pretty stressful time of year for high school seniors applying to college, given that the November 1 deadline for most early action or early decision schools is coming up. So I wanted to remind all you seniors to take a deep breath and know that the good news is that you will get there. There are so many great colleges in this country, and you will definitely land at one of them. All right, today for my second and third segments, my colleague Michelle Richardson, a college finance consultant here at College Coach, and I will be answering listener questions about admissions and financial aid topics. I personally love the listener question shows, and I love getting your questions, so know that so that I know exactly what you're wondering about. And remember, by the way, that we regularly have these listener question segments, so you are welcome to submit questions yourselves. One of the easiest ways to do it is through our Facebook account. Um, You can just message us. But first, I'll be talking with Sarah Calvert-Kubram, formerly of Lewis and Clark, who is now a colleague here at College Coach. She's also our in-house University of California expert, and so she and I will be discussing the UC application. Now, some of you will have questions about the UC essays, but we will be covering that on the show on October 31st. So this week, we're going to be covering the rest of the application, which is also important. So uh, welcome, Sarah. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming on, because I have to say, it's funny, because I was a college counselor in California, you know, over a decade ago now, and and I look at some of these things, and I'm like, wait, this is different. (laughs) What are they doing now? (laughs) So so I'm really glad you're on here. Um, So let's, I mean, I think everybody knows when it comes to college admissions that the essays are important. Um, What would you say, other than the essays, are going to be kind of the most important elements of the UC application in terms of the things that are going to be most impactful on the, um, you know, for, in terms of the decision? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, as you know, the UCs do a authentically holistic evaluation. So they're looking at all components. Um, arguably, the picture that we see of academic So that is the combination of the rigor, the level of difficulty and well-roundedness of the curriculum, the courses taken, and the grades are probably, just like almost any college that does a holistic review, the most important factor. But because they are so holistic, you know, the test scores and then arguably after that, the activities list, all of the things that students do above and beyond classes are very important in the evaluation. So it's hard for me to just say one thing, um, but I'd say that that, that balance of the um, courses that are taken, the success that you achieve in those classes, and then the activities and way that you spend your time are really key parts of the UC application. So in other words, a lot of it is similar. I mean, it's very different from the common application, but a lot of it is similar. It's just that it, but it doesn't have obviously the recommendations. I think that's a really key difference. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That's a big difference that, you know, your high school teachers and counselors are not sending in letters of recommendation for the UC application. Um, Also, aesthetically, technologically, et cetera, it's a completely different application. But the overall evaluation and philosophy of the UCs and how they look at the applications is very, very similar to colleges that are using the common application. They're all doing a very thoughtful and holistic review of all elements of the student's story. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, you made a really important, important note there that philosophically the evaluation is similar, but it's going to look really different. And one of the elements mm-hmm. that I found most time consuming when I was working with students that I really wish they wouldn't have, but I, they're not going to change this. And what I want is totally irrelevant, um, is, is entering mm-hmm. all the courses. 
Like that that always struck me as very time consuming and kind of probably more stressful than it needs to be. Because I mean, are Mm -hmm. they somewhat forgiving if a student makes an error? I mean, just talk a little bit about that. You know, that's a great question, and I, I agree. My The students that I work with, especially from California, who are doing UCs and Common App get stressed out about this part because it's not that it's rocket science. It's more that it's really labor-intensive, time-consuming, and a lot of attention to detail. Um, I was actually listening to a great training by the UCs this morning, and they reiterated what I say to students is that students should print out a physical copy of their transcript, put it on the table next to their computer, and look at it class by class as they enter it to really double-check for accuracy. Now, if a student realizes they make a small error, of course they can follow up and reach out to the UC system and correct that error, but ideally it is done correctly from the get-go. What I think a big advantage for students applying from inside of California is that all classes taught at California high schools are pre-verified through the UC system as how they how they are evaluated by the UCs, and it's it's a pretty straightforward for entering classes taken at California high schools. It's a bit more complex when entering classes from students out of state for our students that are applying from outside of California, um, and so definitely you want to be especially careful in closely reading all of the material, sitting down with your transcript. It's best to probably have another set of eyes, so a parent, a trusted friend or family member, just to go over it because, you know, we're all human and as we stare at the same thing too much, <laughs> we're more likely to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, one tip I will also give students with that is that right after starting the UC application, the UC system emails students a guide about sending out, submitting their application. It's called Presenting Yourself on the UC Undergraduate Application for Admission. Um, and it's emailed. A lot of times students are so inundated with email that they don't see it, but it's a really fabulous guide to tips for filling out the application, including this part. So as soon as a student starts their UC application, look for that email. There are really great tips and recommendations, and definitely a big part is manually sitting down and entering it. Um, I agree with you that it's clunky. I wish it wasn't there, but I also know that the UC system is so massive that they do this to standardize and streamline because they get thousands upon thousands of applications. So I, I get it from that pragmatic perspective because they have to try to standardize. Yeah, I do have sympathy for them. I mean, I I think one year UCLA got more applications than any other college in the country. I mean, like that's mm-hmm. that's crazy. It's just huge numbers, mm-hmm. and and I I, I do want to be clear that I think in general the UC like your UC admission staffer is absolutely doing their best that they can given the numbers that they're dealing with to give every student a fair and thoughtful read. So if this helps Mm -hmm. them do that, then absolutely, (laughs) you know, like that, if if it helps them, it helps them. And that, that absolutely matters, but it just gives me fits. And I'm a, an adult who's been working (laughs) on more than one of these. So, um, yes, most certainly. Yeah. Now, um, how important, I know there's other bigger things and I promise we're going to get to the activity list, which is really important. But before I forget, I wanted to ask you, how important is the GPA? Because I've had more than one phone call with families that are stressing about the GPA. How do they calculate the GPA? Mm-hmm. Do, you know, yeah. um, community college classes, can they be factored in? And I'm like, you know, it's holistic. They're going to look at the classes. Mm-hmm. This is not as big of a deal. So give me your full evaluation of that. Yeah. Um, so essentially, first I'm going to mention that there are what are called 14 factors of holistic evaluation that UC offices of admission are allowed to look at when evaluating students' applications. What we call the UC GPA is one of those factors. Um, the UP- UC GPA is essentially where they are calculating a GPA in a standardized way to try to put all students on a pretty similar way for being evaluated, acknowledging that there are so many differences of high schools and how they do GPAs and grades, both in California and across the country. Um, What I encourage students to do is look on the UC admissions website. If you Google UC GPA requirements, there's an excellent explanation of how it's all done, and take a look at it. 
What a lot of students don't realize is that there are minimum GPA thresholds for students. Um, just because you're above those minimums doesn't mean you'll be admitted, but those are minimums. And so it's good for students to take a look at how the UCs will calculate their GPA and if they meet those criteria. Um, for students from California, California residents, it is 3.0 or higher. For non-residents, so students from other countries or other states, it's 3.4 or higher. Um, and they have very specific ways on how they calculate it. Um, for this GPA, which is one data point they use, they are looking at grades in 10th and 11th grade. So they don't include the grades from 9th grade, um, but rest assured if your student did really well in 9th grade, they still see those grades. They still look at the entire high school journey. Those grades just aren't put into this this GPA recalculation. The reason that they're doing this is that classes in 10th and 11th grade have increasing rigor or difficulty, and they're trying to capture how students did in that those two core years, also knowing that 11th grade is the last full year of school a student completes before applying to college in November, um, and they have very specific ways that they award extra weight to what they call UC Honors classes, which are predominantly AP classes, IB classes, et cetera. And there are some specific um, details about that on their website. One thing that a lot of families don't realize that I think is really important to say out loud is that even if your student goes wild taking every single AP possible, let's say they take five APs in 10th grade, five APs in 11th grade, um, the UCs are not going to increase the weight that those classes have on their GPA beyond eight of those classes. Um, they are saying, you know what, four advanced level classes in 10th grade, four in 11th grade, that is enough to tell us that your student is a really strong academic student and we're not going to ampli amplify the GPA beyond that. Um, I talk to families constantly who get sucked into the high-pressure culture of having their students take every single AP that exists, and they don't even realize that there isn't a quantifiable impact on the UCP UC GPA. Yes, they see that. Yes, they honor that rigor, but it is not included beyond eight in bringing up that GPA at the honors AP level. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think it is important for them to know that. Of course, the tricky thing is that, mm -hmm. you know, some of the private colleges might want to see five. There might be an advantage. Sure. Um, but, yep. um, but yeah, for families that are focused exclusively on the UCs, that's really important news. Yes. And one other thing I'll say is I also hear families say, oh, well, if it's just 10th or 11th grade, 9th and 12th grade don't matter. And I very much want to say, yes, they do. <laughs> um, ultimately, ninth grade is what sets you on the track for success and what classes you can access through all of high school. And 12th grade is the pinnacle of showing to a college that you embrace challenge, that you challenge yourself in well-rounded classes, that you're willing to challenge yourself within specific disciplines, et cetera. So although they don't see grades for your senior year when you submit your application, they do see those personal attributes of diving into a challenge, of pursuing a well-rounded education, and those are things that the selective to highly selective colleges across the United States value, as well as the UCs. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, unless there's more that you want to tell me about this, about sort of GPA and coursework, um, I'd love to talk about the activity list now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so um, the activities list is big this year because the UC system did a big overhaul on their application. Um, for parents who have older students who have done this before, you might land on the UC website and say, oh my goodness, this is completely different. Um, I assure you that it's actually mostly technologically improved, aesthetically made to be more appealing, and they've added a lot of features to explain things, make their um, semantics and wording more clear. The most concrete change that they made is that they did change the um, activities section. So the activities section of the UC application used to have limits to how many things you could list for different types of honors and activities. Now they have made a shift where they say, okay, 
you can list up to 20 um, activities or honors or awards, essentially anything that students have done outside of the, you know, core academic classes, et cetera. Um, you can list up to 20. There are no minimums or maximums for different categories. They really are trying to give students the flexibility to authentically show you know, what, how they've used their time, what their passions are, what they're involved in, um, what they have done to pursue their interests and explore what they might want to study in college, et cetera. Um, but it's up to 20, and um, the students get to list them however they want. Students that I work with find the flexibility of this to be a little bit vis-a-vis what they see on the common application where they can just do, you know, 10 activities and then a few honors and awards. Um, Also, there are longer spaces for explaining them than there are on some of the other applications. So I think that that's something that students really appreciate. Um, It's important to know, though, that the activity section um, is not just activities. It's also um, honors or awards. It can also be times that you've pursued academic uh, pursuits outside of class. So that could be summer academic programs, independent research, scholarly programs on the summer, as well as all of the other extracurriculars, music, sports, volunteering, etc. Um The thing to note is that when you start to list all awards, honors, educational programs, extracurricular activities, et cetera, um, some students run out of space, and that is okay. The UCs really want you to pick the top 20 that are most meaningful to you and who you are. Um, They realize that students run out of space, and that's okay. So one thing that you can think about is picking the activities, awards, et cetera, that you devoted the most time to, the most energy to, that are most reflective of what your values and who you are, um, knowing that you just might not be able to say everything. The mm-hmm. other thing that I've heard from colleagues at the UCs that they want to remind students is that paid jobs, work experience, is also a very valid thing to list on this application. Some young people spend substantial amount of time at a job. Um, some young people devote a lot of time to helping um, with their family, to having other ways that they use their time outside of school. And those are all especially valid things to list, not just what we traditionally think of as activities. Mm-hmm. Great. I was actually just going to ask you that. <clears throat> I loved it when the Common App um, put in an element that allowed you to talk about family responsibilities and I think uh-huh. stressing that if you, I had a student who had to take care of her um, younger brother and sister every day after school. That was her job until six o'clock when her mother came uh-huh. home. And so it really impacted her extracurricular. So I'm so glad yep. that they're stressing that. Uh-huh. And one other place on the UC application where students can write a concise, and I say concise, it shouldn't be an essay, um, description of life factors like that that are complicating the, the picture at home is that there is a additional information section um, right in the same area where these short essays, the personal insight questions are, that students can also write a short blurb that helps give the admissions officers context and understanding their life experiences and how that shapes what they were or were not able to opt into in terms of classes, activities, et cetera. So that's another another place where students can reflect some of those experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, so we're, we're um, getting to the point where we should start to wind up. Is there anything else really important that you would want to emphasize to students about the UC application? You know, honestly, my favorite, favorite thing about the UC application and process is that the UCs are delightfully transparent. So definitely take advantage of their website, um, of that guide that they send you when you start your application, of reaching out to the UC's help desk with questions. Almost every component of the application is described pretty thoroughly on their website. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, we can always interpret and understand all of it. So ask questions. Talk to your high school counselor. Reach out to the UCs directly and ask questions. But take advantage of the fact that they have what, in my opinion, is some of the most transparent and clear descriptions, guides, directions, et cetera, of applications. I think that that is something that is a, a huge advantage for students and families as they navigate this. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great tip to leave people with at the end. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Sally. Have a good day. Okay, so now we're going to be taking a short break. But when I return, M- Michelle Richardson and I will be answering your questions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Accidents, injuries, hazards of all kinds. It seems like everything you do has something dangerous attached to it. Everyday safety is important to us all. Yet where can you get the information you need to prevent injuries and accidents? Tune in for Todd Murray and his program, Safety is Your First Choice. From safety in the home to the car in your workplace, as well as anywhere that you need to be prepared, he'll cover a range of topics. Tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Michelle Richardson and I will be answering questions submitted to us by listeners to the show. So welcome, Michelle. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for being on. So let's go ahead and dive right in. We never get to all the questions as it is. So, um, all right. So this first question um, says, I hear you should apply for financial aid as early as possible. Should I complete the FAFSA, that's free application for federal student aid, on October 1st? I guess we're already a little late for that, but address whether that would have been a good idea or whether maybe it doesn't even matter. What do you think? Yeah, so we get this question a lot. Uh, We tell families that they don't have to stay up until midnight on October 1st and complete the FAFSA. In fact, the system actually went down uh, last year on October 1st because so many people were logged in to complete the free application. So it's not too late. Uh, Yes, it opened on October 1st, but we would encourage families to apply for financial aid and complete the FAFSA uh, at least by the end of October, um, if at all possible. Okay, so end of October, because I get this question, too, and I'm like, I don't know, what is the website of the college say? So um, that is good. Right, and that's that's a very good point. Um, Some colleges, you know, have priority deadlines uh, that coincide perhaps with their admission application deadlines, and so they can check with the uh, 
website, the individual college website, but um, typically everybody's pretty good to go if they can get it done in October. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So uh, the question I have for you, Sally, is I have some questions about my third culture daughter. How do you think my daughter will be viewed not having studied at an international school with English instruction? Will this hinder her or will it look like even a bigger hurdle that she has been able to overcome? So, How best can she express this uniqueness in her application? Yeah, this this question is so complicated that I actually thought about not having us answer it just because there's so much that we don't know. It's not that it's not a great question, but... Like, as a third culture daughter, I don't know, does that mean that she was born overseas and now she's living here at an American school? Do you live overseas, but you go, but she attends an American school overseas? Um, You know, I'm sort of guessing that um, she's an international student who attends a sort of regular kind of domestic U.S. um, high school. Um, in which case, what I say is whether it's going to, it's definitely not going to hinder her. There's no reason why it would hinder her at all. Um, it might look like a slightly bigger hurdle, although that is going to be dependent on how long she's been in an American high school system, right? So if, you know, if her English is her second language, but, you know, she's been in the U.S. system since she was age 10 or younger, I think they're going to kind of anticipate that she should have been able to learn the language, get up to speed, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so, you know, it's definitely not going to be held against her, but there's not necessarily going to be a ton of slack paid unless she really came very, very recently, in which case what she's going to want to do is, you know, take the TOEFL, that kind of thing. Um, in terms of how she can express her uniqueness and, and her uniqueness in her application, again, it kind of depends on her personal story, but obviously the essay is a really good way to kind of write about, I mean, I, I personally think that when third culture kids write about sort of the cultural norms that they're seeing and some of the differences, it can be really interesting. Sometimes it ends up relying on kind of cliched comparisons between the U.S. and their home country. But if what they can do is really give a sort of very personal account of what it's meant to them to be a third culture kid, then I think that can be um, a real positive. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, great. So on to your next question. Um, we haven't, this one makes me nervous just reading it. Um, we haven't saved for college, so we're counting on our daughter winning the National Merit Scholarship. I know she needs to take the PSAT. Do we need to do anything else? Yes, wow. So yes, this is a is a very uh, good question. Um, you know, the interesting thing about the National Merit Scholarship is not every semifinalist actually becomes a, a finalist and, and wins a scholarship due to this designation. Um, actually, about 50 to 60% of the actual National Merit finalists actually receive funding. And some colleges don't award scholarships based on being designated as a national merit scholar. So I would encourage this uh, family to, um, if they haven't saved, they can start saving perhaps, or uh, they need to start thinking about other payment options and ways to pay for college because you can't really count on the National Merit Scholarship. And I have am not aware of any colleges that would even award a full tuition um, scholarship based on being designated a National Merit Scholarship finalist. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the biggest way for families to pay for college or to reduce that uh, cost of attendance is, is really in the college selection process. So I would encourage this family to... Uh, work on a well-balanced list and and perhaps look at schools where, based on the academic profile of their child, uh, the student could potentially receive merit scholarships from the college. That's probably going to be a better strategy um, at this point without um, just thinking that 
the National Merit Scholarship is is going to take care of everything because, quite honestly, it won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the most I've seen is 50% for National Merit, and those are considered quite generous, I believe. The schools that I worked at, um, <clears throat> I mean, University of Chicago, I think we would give $1,000 a year or something like that, which was not a big percentage. <laughs> so, so, yeah, look for schools Absolutely. that are generous. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, we see scholarships ranging from 500. Um, yes, I'm aware of uh, one school where it is a uh, 50% uh, tuition. Um, but again, not all colleges, especially the highly, highly selective ones, you know, don't award any uh, scholarships based on this designation. So, um I would encourage the family to, you know, look at other outside scholarship opportunities as well and not just count on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know, part of getting national merit, just so they know, is not just strong testing, but the student has to be a very strong student. Um, I have, I did have a student who kind of got through the initial national merit um designation and when he applied like most students get it because usually if you have the high enough PSAT you also have high grades this particular student had very high testing he was very intelligent but he didn't want to work particularly hard and so he did not get (laughs) national merit um you know finalist so so just be yeah just to kind of reiterate what you said um what you need to do is have that balanced list and uh you know, make sure you've got a good number of safeties and make sure those safeties award scholarships. That's that's probably going to be your best bet. Yes, I would completely agree. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, question for you, Sally. Who should I pick to write my recommendation letters? So who should you pick? That's always, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's an interesting question. I always think it's kind of obvious, right? Like you want to pick an academic um, someone within the core academic subject areas. Um, but every once in a while, I talk to a student who says, yeah, but I didn't do as well in my physics class. So, um, you know, I want to have my engineering professor do it. Well, even if you want to be an engineering, an engineering professor is usually not going to be as good of an option um, because engineering is still an elective. So remember, you want to pick someone within the academic, the areas of academic solids. Um, so that's going to be English, math, science, history, or foreign language. And some colleges will even be a little bit more specific about it. Like they might want, you know, one in math and science and one in English or history or something like that, although those colleges are rare. So so just think in terms of academic solids. Also think about um people who have taught you in your junior year. That's actually quite important. The only exception to that, I would say, would be someone who, like if it's a teacher who had you at 10th grade, ideally they've got you again in 12th grade so they can address who you are at your most mature academically. Sure. All right. So um, another question for you. I will soon be filling out the FAFSA for my senior son. I've heard that colleges don't look at the equity you have in your house. Should I take my cash and pay it towards my house so we get more financial aid? <laughs> I'll bet you get this question a lot. You know, yes, I was just going to say, I, I feel like I answer this question, you know, daily, um, especially this time of year um, in, in going into the FAFSA frenzy season, um, if you will. So um, when families fill out the FAFSA, um, they do need to report parent-owned and student-owned assets. Um, Parents do not report the value of their primary residence. So it is true that if the college only requires the FAFSA, you are not reporting the equity that you have in your home as an asset, and so therefore the schools are not looking at that asset as a, as a resource to uh, pay for college. Um, now, there are about 300 or so colleges in the country, uh, especially the schools that have large endowments and award significant uh, need-based grants. 
they look and have and require a additional financial aid application, which is referred to as the College Board's CSS profile. And if your student is applying to any of the colleges that require the FAFSA and the CSS profile, um, you will need to report the home equity that you have in your primary residence as well as any other uh, real estate. Um, and also, if you have real estate outside of your primary residence or home, you would report that as a parent asset on the FAFSA as well. Um, you know, answering the last part of this question, should I, you know, take my cash and pay it towards the, the house um, in order to be eligible? The one thing that I find families are not really aware of and in tune with is when families complete the FAFSA, the methodology behind it generates a number that is referred to as the EFC or expected family contribution. And really, it's parent income that drives that expected family contribution, not parent-owned assets. So... Um, I typically am not in favor of liquidating um, accounts, um, especially emergency accounts, and, and that because not knowing this family's income, they may or may not be eligible for need-based financial aid based on the cost of college where their senior son is applying to and also based on um, on the fact that I don't know the the parent income. So um, families should be, you know, in in, uh, tuned with which financial aid applications um, are required at each college. And, um, and again, no, you don't report the value of your home on the FAFSA, but you would report that information on the CSS profile. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Here's another question on recommendation letters. Uh, do my recommendation letters need to arrive in the admission office before my application does, or does my application need to arrive first? And what about my test scores? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this question I get all the time um, this time of year, and there's a lot of anxiety about it, you know, and people will say that my the teacher hasn't submitted the recommendation yet, and I'll say, well, what's the deadline? And they say, November 1st. And I say, well, then they have two weeks, you know, or, you know, whatever amount of time. <laughs> like, why are you so stressed about this? And they'll say, well, doesn't their letter, don't their letters have to come in first? And I'm like, absolutely not. It does not have to come in first. Um, it's it's like a, a weird thing. Like people sort of make up rules in their head. I don't know. I don't know where these particular myths come from. But um, as I've told many students in the last few days, if colleges couldn't process applications where it didn't all come at exactly the same time, or if they had particular rules about the order things came in, they would essentially have half the applicants that they have because things don't come in in perfect order. So it's okay that colleges have systems. (laughs) I mean, really, think about it. The colleges have systems to deal with this. Basically, anything that comes into the office gets at this point, electronically filed. Um, they certainly do look for the name of the student. Um, if the student's you know, name isn't there yet, that's okay. They still open up kind of not an applicant file, but they open up sort of like a supplemental material file for that student. And then when the student's application comes in, they match everything to it. Or if it happens in the reverse order, the student's application comes in first, they open up a file on that student as an applicant, and then everything else that comes in is matched and goes into that file. So absolutely, things can come in before, they can come in after. The main thing is that they come in honestly, like on the application day. And I'll tell you a secret. Most colleges are actually fine with the um, kind of information. So the application material that is directly controlled by the student must be on time. I can't stress that enough. I do recommend actually getting it in at least a few days early, just in case something goes wrong, you have time to fix it. Because students, your application have to be has to be submitted on time. There's there's no leeway on that. There is potential that if you don't submit it on time, you won't even be considered an applicant. Or say if it's for early action, they're just going to roll your application to regular decision. However, the secret is 
that um, for most schools, if a teacher recommendation or counselor recommendation or test scores come in a few days later, the student's application will still be reviewed. There won't be any negative consequence. Now, this isn't 100%. I've heard of University of Michigan, for example, being very strict that everything comes in by the deadline, particularly for early, or they won't process it. They'll look at it for regular. But I just want to stress to people that this is not a thing. This is not a thing. There is not a particular order that's required. When you finish your part of the application, submit it. And then actually my recommendation, you never want to be annoying with your recommenders, right? You want to be nice to them. <laughs> so my recommendation <laughs> right. is don't say submit my recommendations now because they're doing you a favor. However, instead, what you can do is you can send them a very lovely email. And this should come from the student, not the parent saying, Dear Ms. Smith, um, I just wanted to let you know that I have submitted my applications to the following schools. Thank you so very much for agreeing to be um, a recommender for me. I just wanted to keep you up to date. And that way, guess what? You're reminding them, but you're not doing it in an obnoxious way. And you are. You're letting them know. I mean, I can tell you when I was a high school counselor, the students who got their um, applications in first you know, that motivated me to get to their letters of recommendation first, right? So, um, yeah, so, so send them, just let them know, keep them up to date. That's how you do it. And thank them every time you're doing it, because they are doing you a favor, especially the teachers. I mean, the counselors have to submit your letter of recommendation, but the teachers really, they could say no. So, um, all right. So again, very good tip. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so um, so let's gonna we're gonna go ahead and uh, take a break now, and um, yeah, when we get back, Michelle and I will continue answering listener questions. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. So, Michelle, on to our next question. Um, All right. So, um, one gentleman asks or says, 
I want my son to be totally responsible for his educational costs. Where can he get a loan? Boy, okay. So, um, you know, oftentimes we talk to parents and, and, you know, we hear that, you know, I want my, my student or child to be completely responsible for their college costs. You know, my parents didn't pay for my college and I paid for my own. Um, but quite honestly, based on what the actual cost is today, um, it's very challenging if, you know, almost impossible for a, a student to pay for college completely on, on their own. Um, you know, so with that being said, um, in talking about students and in financing their own college education, um, If a family completes the FAFSA, basically every student, as long as they're enrolled greater than half time, is eligible to uh, borrow from the federal government in the federal direct loan program. Um, Some parents or families might remember this program as the old Stafford loan program, Um, and so the federal direct loan program is an entitlement. So regardless of whether the student has need uh, or not uh, demonstrated by uh, completing the financial aid applications, that's how colleges determine if a family has or a student has demonstrated financial need. But the federal direct loan program is very limited in the amount of funding that they will loan to students. And the annual loan amounts are based strictly on grade level. So the maximum that a college freshman today can borrow in the federal direct loan program is $5,500. And that doesn't go very far. Um, when they're a sophomore, it goes up to 6500 and then the maximum a student can borrow on their own is 7500 as a junior and a senior um, in the federal direct loan program. So that is certainly something that I find a lot of families aren't aware of, um, that there are limitations. Now, there are private lenders, credit unions, banks, um, lending entities that do offer credit-based student loans uh, for those families who do need financing above and beyond the federal direct loan. But in today's uh, lending world, students today cannot borrow any private loans without a credit-worthy cosigner. So, um, you know, if a a family does not want to pay for anything or doesn't have the resources uh, to pay for anything, you know, um, again, selecting a very affordable college, uh, maybe that's even a community college to start out with. So if the expectation of the student is to borrow only the 5500 maximum in the federal direct loan program, they could do that perhaps at a community college or even um, an in-state four-year public um, institution. So um, from a financing perspective, students are, are pretty limited in the amount of student loans that they're able to access on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I run into this question too, even though I'm not a finance counselor and I agree. I don't think people realize it used to be that you could pay for college on a minimum wage job. And uh, that's just not possible anymore. You know, like, um, I mean, the community college, as you said, like, I think that in most states, community colleges, if you can live with your parents, is probably cheap enough that you can do that. But um, but otherwise, unless your kid has some mad skills and is already earning, I don't know, like a lot of money, (laughs) um, that's going to be pretty tough. So. So your uh, next question. So um, this person asked, what are some good websites to research colleges? Um, yeah, I, um, I think that's a great question because honestly, there's a lot of 
kind of bad information out there. So I think it's always really good to kind of go to the sources themselves. So obviously, you know, go to the college website. Like, I can't stress that enough. I mean, one of you, it might have been you, Michelle, actually, like, I, I usually, when I'm doing a search, I would kind of put in, you know, like, Cornell School of Hospitality admission requirements, right? And one of, um, right. one of the... Fun- one of the finance teams said, well, I go to Cornell and then I put in the search on the site there. And that way I make sure that I'm getting to the college website. So I actually think that that's a really good tip. Like always go to the college websites um, first and foremost, but obviously colleges, you know, the admission website is going to be putting their best foot forward. Um, You know, that being said, if you dig past the sort of basic shiny, happy stuff from the, um, yeah, if you if you dig past kind of just the shiny happy stuff from the UC or or that like the admission office is putting forward, you can get a lot of good, really good kind of basic information um, about the college itself that's more geared towards the current students. So I always recommend you know absolutely doing that. Um, However, there are some other good websites. Probably my favorite is BigFuture.CollegeBoard. Dot org. So again, that's big future, one word, but big future.collegeboard.org. And what I love about that website is that not only can you do all kinds of college searches, like there's a drop down menu for fine colleges, and you can do a college search where you input information about who your child is you know, who your student is, et cetera. And then they'll kind of search out and give you a full list of colleges. So there's that option, but you can also, you know, look up things like possible careers, um, how that matches up with college majors, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, if you're looking up some basic information about colleges, I think the college board is a really good place to start. And then um, another good place is Princeton Review actually has a really good website too. So I think I would start with those. And uh, I'm actually going to have to wrap it up. I didn't realize like how quickly we were going through, but I just got the one minute heads up. So um, thanks so much to (laughs) Michelle and to Sarah Calvert-Kubram. I want to tell you about our show next week on October 31st. Beth Heaton, our regular host, will be back. And as I mentioned at the top of the hour, she's going to be discussing the University of California personal insight questions. Um, And I also want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can download every show for free on iTunes. You can look through our archives for shows with topics such as tips for alumni interviews and what FERPA is. And by the way, we've had some questions about how to search for specific topics on our podcast. Um, While unfortunately Voice America, our host platform, doesn't have a search option, we do write a blog post about it, and those are searchable. So you can just go to blog.getintocollege.com. That's blog.getintocollege.com and search for the show, Getting In, and whatever topic interests you. Um, And then you can not only read the blog, but the blog will have the date of the radio show. So, and last, if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time and is absolutely free. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you so much and check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.